I'm not a fan of horror films. However, there are some horrors that do get my heart pumping. Psycho, Silence of the Lambs and Seven. They all have one thing in common. They're not that violent. The threat of violence is there, but once the cruelty erupts, the camera doesn't show it. With regard to on-screen violence, my opinion is very old school. The horror in the mind is far better than the horror on screen. Why? Because what I find horrific mightn't even frighten the cat. I much prefer ghost stories, such as The Innocence from 1961, The Sixth Sense, the original Japanese version of The Ring, and the Spanish chiller The Orphanage, produced by Guillermo del Toro. Which may explain why I admire John Carpenter's Halloween. Reading from the decision of Judge Walter Ward, I have no choice but to remand Michael Audrey Myers to the Smith's Grove, Warren County Sanitarium, where he shall be placed in the care of a resident psychiatrist who shall report to this court no less than twice a year. Further, Michael Audrey Myers shall be brought before the court on the day of his 21st birthday, where he shall be tried as an adult for the murder of his sister, Judith Margaret Myers. Released in 1978, it came near the end of a 10-year stretch that saw the horror genre reach a popularity that Hollywood had not witnessed since the 1930s. Back in those days, the likes of Dracula, Frankenstein and The Mummy had terrified audiences, but only under strict studio supervision. The introduction of the Hayes Code in 1934 meant that certain things were prohibited on screen. But by the mid-1960s, the code had been dismantled and a new rating system was in place that prohibited not content, but minors from seeing films aimed at adults. In quick succession, you had Rosemary's Baby, The Night of the Living Dead, The Exorcist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and The Omen, bringing frights, shocks, and nausea in doses never experienced before. Keep away! The soul is mine! John Carpenter, an extremely gifted young filmmaker, was just 30 years old when Erwin Yablins, an independent financier, approached him to write and direct an idea Yablans had for a low-budget picture he called The Babysitter Murders. A disturbing concept, it was a brilliant title, telling you the story in barely three words. Yablans wanted the story to be structured like an old radio play, where every few minutes the audience was given an almighty scare. In other words, Yablans wanted to feel the fear, but not show the horror. So, Carpenter sat down with his then-girlfriend, Deborah Hill, to write the story, which Yablans then decided was to be set at Halloween. And so, the as-yet incomplete script was accordingly retitled. That one suggestion sent Carpenter and Hill off on a three-week writing spree, during which they investigated, of all things, Celtic mythology that claims that the final night in October sees the souls of the dead wreak havoc on the living. With that in mind, Hill and Carpenter then conjured up the premise that there is one thing you cannot kill. Evil. I met him 15 years ago. I I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. 
I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. From the remove of 2013, it is too frequently forgotten how great a filmmaker John Carpenter was. All but retired now, he was for a while as important and as influential as Steven Spielberg. From Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween and The Fog in the mid to late 1970s, to Escape from New York, The Thing and Starman in the mid 1980s, Carpenter made movies very economically with very big box office returns. Halloween cost $325,000 and grossed in $75 million worldwide. All told, and adjusted to inflation, Carpenter's films have grossed in over $700 million. Being his own editor and composer, Carpenter already showed an innate sense of timing and an understanding as to the importance of sound. However, although his talents did not extend to serving as cinematographer, Carpenter also displayed a brilliant visual sense. With the exception of his first film, the mega-low-budget Dark Star, Carpenter has insisted that all his stories be filmed in the anamorphic aspect ratio, which means that the frame is rectangle, which also means because of the width, you can fit more details into it, but it also means you can leave the extra width empty. And if you compose it correctly, you can create the sense that something is about to enter upon that space. Not necessarily from the left or from the right, but from the background. And because anamorphic lenses do not allow for deep focus, it means that what appears in the background would be out of focus. And so we're not quite sure who or what has appeared. You know, it's totally insane. We have three new cheers to learn in the morning. The game is in the afternoon. I have to get my hair done at five and the dance is at eight. I'll be totally wiped out. I don't think you have enough to do tomorrow. Totally. As Carpenter lets his anamorphic frame walk around the sleepy suburb of Haddonfield, Illinois, he does something very clever over the course of the film. Watch carefully and you will notice that at the start we see Laurie Strode, effectively played by Jamie Lee Curtis, as she and her friends attend class in high school and then walk along the quiet streets on their way home. These scenes take place predominantly in wide shot, but incrementally, as the deranged and seemingly unstoppable Michael Myers appears and begins his murderous rampage, the camera moves closer and closer in on Laurie until finally she is not so much trapped in a bedroom closet as she is confined there by Carpenter's camera. Now there is no space in which for Laurie to move and it seems that there will be no escaping the marauder in the mask. All of which is not to say that I'm completely at ease with everything in the film. Halloween associates sex and murder specifically the murder of near-nude women with knives that puncture their flesh. What complicates this is, again, Carpenter's camera. For the very famous opening sequence, we see the action through the eyes of a stalker, 
walking up to and slipping around the side of a house to spy in a window to see a young couple kissing on a couch and then go inside the house to the kitchen, pull open the drawer, take out a carving knife and head upstairs into a young woman's bedroom where we see her, dressed in just her panties, brushing out her hair. She turns, sees us, screams and we, the viewer, inhabiting the space of the stalker, begin to stab her. Once that is done, we, now the killer, move out of the room, down the stairs, out of the house where a man confronts us. Sure, a lot of academic analysis will try to tell you that the sequence is all about the deviation of identity and culpability in filmic violence, which is fine as a theory. But violence is not theoretical and sexual violence is even less so. Throughout the history of cinema, the act of looking has prioritised the male point of view and men have devoted a lot of filmic time looking at women. In this way, cinema has elevated women to the level of spectacle. But in so doing, cinema has also relegated women to the level of object, the object of desire. Horror is a genre that is heavily dependent upon looking, and the demographic for horror films is predominantly young men. So, horror films assume that the point of view is male. That point of view not only presents the female as an object of desire, but renders her passive. The passive female is then reduced to body parts. However problematic that is, the advent of point of view internet pornography has only exacerbated that problem exponentially. If you want to experience a very mature and responsible film that examines the whole notion of deviation, sexual violence and looking, the first and last place to go is Jonathan Demme's superb adaptation of Thomas Harris's terrifying novel, The Silence of the Lambs.